The field of communication studies has grown a lot in recent years and also acquired greater visibility in the humanities, social and behavioral sciences. With that comes the problematic of trying to explain the scope and the worth of the field to other academic communities. What are the challenges and opportunities involved in that? About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Gillian Baez in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcikowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this new episode of El Café Latinx. We are joined today uh, by Gillian Baez. Um, Gillian is an associate professor in the Department of Africana and Puerto Rican Latino Studies at Hunter College in the City University of New York. She is also a faculty affiliate in the Latin American and Caribbean Studies program and in the Women's and Gender Studies a program of the Graduate Center, both at the City University of New York, as well as a faculty affiliate at the Mexican Studies Institute. Before that, she was an assistant professor in the Department of Media Culture at the College of Staten Island in the City University of New York as well. And before then, she held positions at the University of Michigan and at Williams College. She did her BA um, at City University of New York. So she's now a professor at her alma mater and her PhD at the Institute for Communications Research at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her first book, In Search of Belonging, Latinas, Media and Citizenship, published by the University of Illinois Press, uh, was extremely well received and uh, was awarded the 2019 Bonnie Ritter Award for Outstanding Feminist Book of the National Communication Association. She is the guest editor of two special issues, uh, most recently, uh, in Latino Studies, a special section that's a tribute to my colleague, Frances Aparicio. She's the author of many journal articles, uh, most recently in Latino Studies, Communication, Culture, and Critique, and Chicana Latina uh, Studies Journal. Uh, Gillian, it is truly a pleasure to have you with us in El Café Latinx. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be part of the conversation. Thank you so much. So tell us, how did it all begin? That is, um, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? My journey begins as an undergraduate student. Um, you know, I majored in communications, not fully knowing what that meant. Um, you know, I came from a working class family um, and my parents really just wanted me to go to college and select a major that would get me a job. Um, and so, 
started off, um, I thought, oh, okay, communications, you could work in, you know, various forms of media. The, the thought of being a journalist sort of appealed to me before I knew what the job market was for that. Um, and, uh, you know, luckily enough, um, the major that I was in, you took both theory and production courses. Um, and what I came to find was that I really enjoyed, you know, the courses that talked about media theory, the courses that dealt with history of different um, media, um, and I liked them more so than the production courses. I did okay in the production courses, um, but, you know, I had certainly gone into it thinking that, oh, I want to be a media producer, um, and it turned out to be the other way. Um, but I didn't know what that interest meant until uh, you know, two things happened by circumstance. One is, you know, while I was an undergraduate, Federico Suberbi, who was a major um, figure, you know, in Latina Latino communication, happened to um, teach for I think a year or two in New York City, um, and he happened to be looking for an undergraduate research assistant. Um, and so through a number of networks at, at CUNY, um, you know, I saw this ad, we were put in touch with one another. Um, and he was really the first scholar that I ever met who worked in this area. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised to find out that you could make a career out of this. Um, you know, I had already um, added on a double major. I was majoring in what was then Black and Puerto Rican studies. Um, our department name has shifted since then. Um, and so I was sort of thinking about how those um, two areas of communications and ethnic studies, how they overlap, particularly in terms of thinking about Latino studies. Um, but really, I hadn't seen that model before until I met Federico Suberbi. Um, and then, you know, following that, um, maybe the next semester, um, I took a course called Women in Media. And we happened to be reading Angela Valdivia's book, A Latina in the Land of Hollywood. I had never read really um, anything specifically about Latinos in media prior to having, um, you know, met Federico Suberbi. And I was, and certainly had never seen any of that work on the syllabi for the classes that I was taking. Um, so I turned that book around to see who, you know, to look at the little blurb about who the author is. And it says, okay, she's Angela Valdivia. She's at the University of Urbana-Champaign. And I remember thinking, where is Urbana-Champaign? <laughs> what is this Urbana? That was totally you know, outside of my geographic understanding of the world. And so I, um, I looked her up. Um, and luckily, you know, this was at the point where you could look people up and they had a little page, although it wasn't, I don't think it was immediately attached to her email. So I had to do a little bit of work to figure out how to get in touch with her, but I did. And I, and I wrote her a note saying, you know, I love the book. Um, maybe I was, I, I was thinking about graduate school and she wrote me back right away and had said, let's talk. You should think about graduate school. Um, and that's, you know, how the journey began for me. All right, so you had a great mentor and a great inspirational figure at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you went straight from CUNY um, to UIUC, or did, did you apply to other programs? How was the transition? I did. I did apply to other programs. Um, I had applied to a number of them across the country. Um, and for me, I, you know, and I was accepted to a handful. Um, so I did have some choices, but for me, um, there were two things guiding my decision. Um, one was, you know, a, a number of people had said to me, it's really important that you go somewhere that has faculty that can work in the area that you want to go into. Um, and so, 
you know, I initially I had wanted to go to UC San Diego, but the faculty member that I would have been working with um, had revealed to me that she was going to leave the, the next year, which I did appreciate. Um, and so that was extremely useful information. Um, and so that determined some of it. Um, and then the other issue, to be honest with you, was, you know, coming from a working class background, I knew that wherever I went, I was going to have to pay my own way, so to speak. Um, and Urbana-Champaign seemed like a perfect place because Anjara Bolivia was there. Isabel Molina Guzman had also been recently hired as a junior faculty member. Um, and there were a number of people there working on um, race and ethnicity, working on international communication. So it was a, it, I, I felt like it was going to be the best fit for me. Plus, um, they offered a really good you know, package for me to continue for the first five years. Um, and honestly, Urbana-Champaign is a very cheap place to live. Um, and so <laughs> I'm not going to lie and say that that was also a factor um, in, in, in making my decision. And so how was the experience there? It was, on the one hand, you know, unlike anything else I had experienced geographically, I mean, this is, um, you know, I was born and raised in New York City. Um, and I really, at that point in my life, had not traveled much either, uh, other than to, to Puerto Rico, you know, which is where my family was from. Um, and so, and maybe Florida, again, because we have family that had migrated there. Um, and so, you know, Urbana-Champaign is two hours, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> from Chicago. And, um, you know, and on the way there, there's nothing but cornfields. Um, so, you know, that was different. Um, and it was certainly, you know, it, was just, it, it is a small, um, it's a small college town, so to speak. Um, but I will say this, one of the things that I loved, and I still, you know, think about it in very nostalgic ways is that it was a space where it had just like an amazing community of scholars and you met people from all over the world that I feel like otherwise I never would have engaged with, you know, on both an intellectual level, but also on a personal level. And so I always hold that very dear in my heart. Um, and for me, I mean, it might sound strange thinking about, you know, someone so urban going to that kind of setting, but it was exactly what I needed for graduate school. Um, and, um, and I still, you know, I joke, I joke with people that I, every once in a while, I still have dreams about being at Urbana-Champaign, going to the little cafes. <laughs> so it definitely um, was formative for me, but also holds a special place in my heart. That's wonderful. Yes, I was thinking, um, I didn't know that you were born and raised in, in New York, but from from an undergraduate at, at Hunter College to Urbana, that's that's a significant urban transition, uh, urban to rural, I mean, at this mm -hmm. point, right? So, um, and, and then when it came time to go on the job market, before that, did you know that you wanted a career in academia or did you also consider careers outside of academia after your PhD? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, by the time I had started graduate school, I don't think I really fully understand what it implied. Um, you know, I was primarily there for intellectual reasons, right? This was really interesting. These topics were really interesting to me. So I just wanted to go more in depth. And I felt like I had been afforded this opportunity to do that. But um, I don't think it was until maybe my second or third year where I applied for a fellowship. And my advisor asked me like, well, what do you want to do after this? Like, do you want to work at a teaching college or do you want to be at a more research intensive university like, or something else? What is your plan? Um, and it was at that point that I really had to think about, <laughs> oh, that's right. I have been preparing um, specific, sp 
specifically for um, you know, a role in academia. Um, and I realized that that was what I wanted to do and that I just needed to sort of figure out um, you know, how I would kind of meld my research and teaching interests. Um, and I did, will say this, I had known that I did not wanna go into media production pretty early on because while I was an undergraduate, I did work in those kinds of roles as a production assistant, as a publicity assistant. So I had already a sense that I knew I didn't really wanna go into that. Um, and you know, as I went further along into graduate school, it was further solidified for me that I really, um, I really wanted to focus on research and teaching. Okay. And, and then going on the academic labor market, um, how was that? That was not easy. <laughs> and some of it had to do, um, of course, with timing. Um, so in my case, um, you know, I finished my PhD in 2019. Um, and so when I really went on the job market that year before, as I was finishing the dissertation uh, in 2018, um, you know, that is when there was a huge economic crisis. And so literally, like, I remember that fall or 2008, not 2018. That exactly. fall, yeah, no, 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 2008. Um, I remember there actually being some jobs. I mean, of course it was always competitive, but there were some to apply to. Um, and then by December, January coming um, and search committees reaching out and saying, we're so sorry, this position no longer exists. You know, we're not, we're not even gonna interview folks. Um, and that continued for, for another good, maybe two years. Um, you know, and I was lucky to be able to find in the meantime position, so to speak. Um, so I had a postdoc immediately following, which I was very grateful for and gave me an opportunity to regroup. Um, and then later was visiting. Um, so it was not easy. It was not easy also too, because I had to move, right? So I was going from Illinois to then, um, I did a dissertation fellowship in Albany, New York, and then going back to the Midwest for a postdoc at Michigan. And then I got a visiting position at Williams. And then finally, after that, got my tenure track position at, at CUNY. Um, so it was a very long journey. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to paint it as an as an easy road. Um, but at the same time, I think, um, you know, graduate students should know um, that the one thing that I could have told myself, and I wish I, if I were to go back and I, I would tell myself is to remember that, you know, some of this has to do with luck, but also too, you need to be prepared because when the opportunity does arise, um, you want to be ready right, to go in and um, have a really clear sense of what it is that you're offering um, and also that you're looking for. I think that we have to have, you know, that sense as well. And I think that search committees are, are looking for that sense of purpose. So how did you come up with yours? I mean, it's not easy and it's not easy, especially at the beginning of one's career. Um, how did you figure out what you wanted and how to present yourself in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it took me a while to figure that out and that got easier as the years went on. Um, I think for me, you know, I, and I think that many people face this as they finish, it's, it's hard to think about what your research agenda is beyond your dissertation, right? And publishing your dissertation, whether that's in book form or article form. Um, so it took me a while to really figure out, okay, where do I wanna go next? Um, what conversations do I want to enter in the field and in, in communications? 
Um, I think also too, to be honest, um, in my case, and certainly this is the case of a number of folks in communications, I also had to think about too how different fields would perceive my work. Um, and I say that because, you know, I was interviewing for jobs in communications and even within communications that can be all over the place, right? There are some departments where they're following like a mass communication model. Others are, you know, do mostly interpersonal or organizational and you may be the only person who looks at media. And so you have to think about that, that they, you know, so those are, so thinking about that within communications, but then also, um, you know, some of us in my case, you know, I, I think at one point I had interviewed for an American studies job, um, certainly, um, you know, ethnic studies jobs, Latino studies jobs, um, sometimes women's studies, and all of those, you know, you have fo folks from really different disciplines then looking in on your work, and many of them, I think that this is the challenge outside of communication, don't know a lot about communication. Right, so they see a communication scholar and they're like, wow, that's really interesting and it seems really relevant, but they don't know how to make sense of it. So you do have to, one of the things I learned pretty early on is I had to figure out how to translate what it is, not only that I do, but what we do as communication scholars to, um, you know, to colleagues who are not you know, communication scholars. And I find myself still doing that, um, you know, in my role now where I'm amongst, which I love my colleagues, but, um, you know, I am the only communication scholar. So I oftentimes do have to tell them, well, you know, in the field we do this or, or, or this is what we focus on. Um, so I think that that's a big part of it. Um, I think what also, um, you know, in terms of how to present yourself, I think that, um, one of the best things that you can do is um, know what your strengths are. Um, and sometimes you have to talk to other people to figure that out early on in your career. It means that you may have to talk to senior people and ask them, you know, what do you see my strengths as, as a scholar, you know, and what are really my, my areas of expertise? Because I think uh, many times we, we think about our work more narrowly than it really is. Um, and I think, you know, because you're going to be talking to peeps, other scholars in other areas within communication or sometimes completely outside of communication, you have to have a, a broader view sort of, of what it is that you do. Um, and I think it helps to kind of bounce those ideas off of other people. Um, and then I'm not going to lie to what also helps is just experience. I will say this, one of the, you know, I, one of the hardest questions that, you know, recent PhDs get asked are around service and teaching, and they may just not have enough experience, right, to answer those questions as in depth as they can. Um, so with those, I think, you know, the best you can do is just sort of do your research um, and have a plan for how you might answer some of those questions, but also be kind of gentle on yourself too, because you just don't have it yet, but eventually you will, right? Um, and then, you know, it becomes, it changes from this is what I would do to this is what I have done in, you know, X or Y circumstances. But it's it, it's tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. And it's a fascinating set of answers. I, I have a couple of follow-up questions. First one is, you, you've been very successful at sort of, as you said, translating or articulating the value of communication research to scholars outside of the field. Um, what are some of the of the do's and don'ts of uh, doing that, in your experience at least? The do's and don'ts. I think. Uh, one of the do's is you do have to give folks a little, you have to t let them know that uh, the sort of contours of the field. What I mean by that is you have to let them know, you know, in communications, you know, um, we study 
right? These very these various forms of messaging or however you want to phrase that or language, but letting people know that there are these different areas within communication, right? Like there's face to face communication versus, you know, looking at media, which are really different. And that's a very crude way of, 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 of talking about the field. But sometimes you have to do that because really, I think folks assume that this is the sense I've, I, this is the feedback I've often gotten. Their only knowledge of communications oftentimes is that, is that it's a popular major. And the assumption is that students who otherwise um, do not do well end up becoming communications majors, right? So that's like what the athletes take on, right? For example, that's a stereotype people have. So you have to sort of, um, you know, explain to them that this is actually a discipline of study. It is rigorous. Um, and also it's not as new as people think. So oftentimes, you know, I talk to the, I, I do mention how, you know, this has been systematically studied in a US context, for example, since at least the 1930s. And when you talk about sort of propaganda studies, people start to get, especially I think now in, in our political moment. Um, but I think people need to know that. Um, and also too, I remind them, you know, and this is an area of study that's taken seriously, like throughout the world. People are always surprised, you know, when I say, you know, some of the strongest research comes from Latin America and people are shocked. And I'm like, no, really? I mean, some of the top scholars, <laughs> that is where the work comes from. Um, it's not the only place, but, but um, so I think that that's, that's definitely a do. Um, I think, um, I'm trying to think of a don't here. Um, I would say the don't is don't assume that they know anything about communication. Do not assume that they necessarily take it um, seriously. And also too, don't assume that they know that it's interdisciplinary. There's a few times when I've had to explain to folks, you know, that there are people in the field who do very um, interpretive research, right? So they're doing um, like text, you know, very close reading of text, for examples. There are there, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have super, you know, quantitative social scientific folks and everybody in between. Um, and I think, um, you know, people just don't know that. So I don't don't make any assumptions. Okay, that's excellent. And then, so as you said, you were you had a postdoctoral position at Michigan, right? And you had a visiting position at Williams, mm -hmm. and then you went back to CUNY. Mm -hmm. So how do you compare your experience at you know a very sort of elite but very very big public institution uh, at an elite and small private institution like Williams uh, and at a place like CUNY, which is the hallmark of sort of upwards mobility through education, at least in this country, probably is the foremost institution for that historically. At least I see the University of New York has played a tremendous role in, in that space, and you are now at the crown jewel of of uh, the CUNY system. So how, how does it compare to be on the faculty and you know in, in, in all these places? Yeah, they have been very different experiences. I mean, certainly at Michigan, um, you know, M Michigan is research driven. Um, everyone is focused on research. And even when you teach undergraduate students, um, everything is all about integrating them into the research experience. Um, and so, I mean, one of the positives is that Michigan just has so many resources and there's so much training available there. Um, you know, if you want to uh, strengthen your qualitative and quantitative skills, it's a great place to be. So as a postdoc, um, it worked out really well for me because it did give me some time to think about my research trajectory and to be pretty open about that in a place where, um, you know, everybody was thinking about research um, all the time. 
I mean, sometimes too, sometimes excessively, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, after that going to Williams, um, it felt like the complete opposite because at Williams, um, yes, uh, the scholars that I would, many of them there, um, very rigorous um, teacher scholars or scholar teachers. Um, and so though the faculty there were just, the faculty culture there was just so different. And I say that because people took research seriously at Williams, but they also um, took teaching uh, as equally serious. Uh, it was also a place where people talked a lot about like pedagogical, pedagogical innovation. And like we used to have teaching lunches every, every week. Um, and there are conversations I had there that I never had anywhere else. Um, because of because it is an elite liberal arts institution that is you know very invested right in working with its undergraduates and there are only undergraduates there right so really the focus is on undergraduates which is really different from Michigan um, and so but I will say this it made me a better teacher and it also learned it taught me how to do seminars because prior to that I had been teaching um, you know larger classes you know, 35 to 70 students, um, you know, and at a public university, um, you cannot give, you know, individual attention to everyone, right? That's just the way it is because there's so many students versus at Williams, you know, these are tiny seminars with a few students. They get to know you really well as a scholar. They're really interested in your scholarship, which is very strange prior to that, right? No one really looks you up and knows what you do. But at Williams, they do. <laughs> and they read everything so carefully. Um, you know, to the point that I would have, sometimes have to tell them, what page are we looking at? What are you? <laughs> because I was not accustomed to having the students read the readings so carefully. Um, so I, I learned a lot about, um, you know, how to work with those kinds of students. Also, too, those students have a lot of anxiety, I think, because they have uh, a tremendous amount of pressure put on them that's a little different from the students that you might get at a public university. Um, but it definitely was a learning experience. Um, and I did, I will say for that time in my life, enjoy, I enjoyed being in a smaller community um, and getting to know this, the students in, in a much more deep way than I otherwise would have um, at a larger institution. Um, and then CUNY just sort of threw me back out there. You know, I didn't start at Hunter. I started at the College of Staten Island, um, which for those of you who are not familiar with the New York City area is technically a borough of New York City. Um, but really in many ways is geographically isolated from the rest of the city um, and also is has its own cultural identity um, that is probably for the conversation of another podcast episode. Um, so that was a, um, it took me, it was an adjustment. It was an adjustment. Um, one, um, you know, there is like a very strong um, working class ethos and identity on Staten Island um, that I had not previously encountered at the other institutions I was at. Um, and I needed to really think about that in the classroom. Um, I mean, just to give you an example, that's the first time that like a student has ever said to me, you know, there's always a unit when you teach communication theory that looks at Marxism and neo-Marxism. And I would have students tell me, professor, with their heavy Staten Island accents, and I say that with all the love in the world, this is the only place that anyone has ever said I don't have an accent is Staten Island. Um, I'm a proletariat. I'm realizing now that I'm so just to get that really resonated, right? And there was no other place really that I taught that 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 resonated in that way. Um, but at the same time, could also be a place that was extremely like politically conservative, um, and also was much more diverse 
ethnically than I had anticipated. Like I knew it was an Italian, it had been an Italian American enclave and still continues to be um, for decades. Uh, but also there's a very old African-American community there. There's a, Li a Liberian community. There's a growing Latino community, specifically um, Mexican, um, but also Dominicans and Puerto Ricans that come from um, other boroughs, particularly Brooklyn. Um, and, and a very large uh, Arab American um, student population. It was like a 20%. And I had never taught um, in such a diverse classroom. So I would go in and honestly, I would not know what to expect. At the other institutions, I thought, okay, there's a number of ways this conversation can go, right? We could, they could argue this, they could argue that. This I never knew <laughs> every day. <laughs> Every day that I went into the classroom, I never really knew where we were going to go because uh, because it was such a diverse classroom. Um, Hunter, there are some similarities, but it, it you know it sits in the you know it's in Manhattan, and the students are um, you know much more selective. The College of Staten Island is open admissions; Hunter is not. Um, it is diverse um, in different ways, uh, but. Yeah, the, I don't think there's a, there will ever be anything in my career quite like the College of Staten Island. So I, you know, I'm appreciative for it, um, but it taught me that, you know, where uh, an institution is geographically located is really, really important and will really shape the way that you have to approach your teaching. Absolutely. And how was to return to your alma mater, but now as a professor? Oh, it's been amazing. I mean, I was never anticipating this happening. This was never, you know, you have ideas in your mind of maybe where your career might go, but this was not, this was a complete sort of a, a wonderful detour. Um, yeah, no, it's been great. I mean, I will say uh, so much has changed because, you know, I'm coming back like almost 20 years later. Um, and so, uh, you know, the institution has changed and grown in many ways, um, it, but it's been really wonderful. I, and I'm, um, it feels great to be able to uh, come back um, in a really different kind of role and, and give back. I mean, I got so much from that in, from Hunter as an undergraduate. Um, and so it's, it's really it, it's really wonderful and I'm very grateful. Excellent. Now, Gillian, you, you are a Latina who studies um, Latino, Latina, Latinx topics. Um, what's your perception of those topics and issues of positionality and representation in the broader field of communication? Where, where have you seen the conversation unfolding and where do you think it should go next? Yeah, I mean, I will say this. I, I am so happy to see uh, the growing scholarship in this field. Um, you, know, even, you know, even just in the last 10 years, it's grown tremendously. It's also wonderful too to see so many graduate students being trained in this area um, because now we're sort of at that third generation level in terms of scholars being trained um, in Latina IOX communication. Um, I think that, you know, one of the challenges, however, is I think within the wider field of communication, um, this is also often seen as like a topic instead of a subfield, right, that has intellectual traditions, um, that has very specific kinds of theoretical frameworks and methodological approaches that could um, be engaged in other contexts, right? I think that there is this sort of sense that it is not applicable um, and therefore we don't really need to engage with it. Um, and I think that that's something that scholars in our field really have to work against. 
And I think on the other end of it, we also have to think about um, our relationship to Latin American studies. Um, and in some ways, um, we have no choice because when we talk about you know, issues of migration in particular, right? There's no way to, to talk about Latino studies and not talk about Latin America, right? Um, but we have to do a better job of thinking about um, what are those overlaps there? Um, and certainly a lot of my work is thinking about that now in terms of thinking about transnational media and how people um, in the US are interpreting, for example, Latin American media and vice versa. Um, and in a digital media environment, sometimes it's hard to even parse out, right? Those geographical spaces um, because they may be interacting in ways that they weren't previously. So those are those are, you know, I think some of the things that we need to think about going forward. But it's I think it's an exciting time at the same time. There's so many more of us. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, to what extent do you think it shapes the kinds of questions you ask and the topics you choose? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think it always makes me attuned to thinking about movement and circulation, right? So thinking about um, how do media texts move right across different kinds of geographic boundaries, but also thinking about it in terms of literally in terms of people, right? So thinking about these questions of um, not only migration from Latin America to the US, but also circular migration and the return. Um, which uh, happens more often than we think in certain contexts. Here I'm thinking about, of course, the Puerto Rican context, but, um, but even the Salvadoran experience where in problematic ways, right, um, children of migrants, right, have been pushed back into El Salvador. So I think, I, I, you know, those are, that those questions of movement and circulation are big for me, um, certainly the transnational, but also thinking about, you know, this larger theme of how do you deal with, heterogeneity, um, racially, ethnically, linguistically. Um, you know, we tend to think of Latinos in Latin America as so generic, um, right? But those of us who study it, you know, I sometimes think I'm not really sure how people think it's a narrow field because you're talking about so many people <laughs> that have such varying, you know, experiences, right? Depending on where they're from. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that question of heterogeneity is really important. I mean, even I look at, you know, the sort of discourses that happen in the US, for example, just about, um, you know, talking about like mixed race identities as if they're new, but that isn't the case. It isn't the case in the US, but it certainly hasn't been the case in Latin America. And so much, you know, thinking and writing has already been done about that. Um, so yeah, the, that that question that that the that theme of heterogeneity always um, is is a way in which I, I I think about working communication. Excellent. And since you mentioned that this is a, yeah the third generation, uh, it's clearly history now. Um, what advice would you give to graduate students who are beginning to think about dissertation topics, um, ideas? you know, problems to consider um, who are interested in these problematics and in, in this particular space? Yeah, um, advice I would give is um, one, don't do it all at once. And I say that because um, right now we're in a moment where, you know, media, it, media has always shifted so much, but particularly now, um, 
you know, even with the pandemic, right? For example, there's like media production has shifted in a way that we never would have anticipated. And so I think it's very easy to think of a lot of different things that we need to look at. Um, so, you know, keep your list going and eventually maybe you will get to some of those projects. Um, but you need to say, I think, uh, make it feasible for yourself. And so figure out like, what am I gonna focus on right now? Knowing that um, you can take a look at those you know, other other uh, issues or topics at some other point. Um, I would also say too, um, you know, I think it's really important to be engaged in communities of, scho of, of scholars, particularly now with the pandemic. I sometimes think like, wow, it must be so difficult to start a graduate program right now, right? To have started last fall um, because so much of the graduate student experience is about creating community um, you know, with the scholars on your campus and certainly with, you know, the other students who are in your classes. So I think that you have to make even more of an effort, um, which is why I really appreciate like the talks that um, that all of you are hosting. Um, that's been really wonderful. Um, but I think, yeah, students have to really go out of their way to uh, make those communities and really get the mentoring that you need because, um, you know, you may be lucky like myself, I had a wonderful advisor, Angara Balivia was my advisor. Um, she was amazing, but um, you know, she was not the only person and you cannot only depend on one person to do that. So it's important too, to make sure that you're meeting other, you know, scholars in the field and not just super senior people, but you also wanna know the more junior assistant professors because they've been on the job market more recently and so they can um, give you uh, sometimes a better sense of what to expect when you're going on these interviews because they do shift sometimes, right? Like the questions change or sometimes the materials that they're asking for can change over time. And so some of those younger scholars have, have a better sense of that. Excellent, excellent. And um, now going from the very beginning of uh, one scholarly career to the field as a whole, um, if, if you had magical powers and um, could be granted one wish about how you'd like the field of communication and media studies uh, to change, uh, what would you wish for? I would, I really, really uh, would hope that Latina and Latino media studies would have more resources. And by resources, I mean, um, more job lines, um, as much as like we've been growing, as I mentioned earlier, um, we still, there are a number of institutions, for example, um, that are like, you know, centers for, you know, Latina, Latino media, but there's no expert there, right? Um, so, you know, thinking about those kinds of resources in terms of jobs, but also too, in terms of grant opportunities, there are not as many grant opportunities um, as there should be um, for this kind of work. Um, and so I'm really thinking about it in terms of, of those resources. I think that's really important to ensure that we have a pipeline, um, but also too that, um, you know, within the larger field um, that our colleagues know that, you know, our work exists and they know the value of it. Great. Now, let me ask you a follow-up question. Because, you know, in the U.S. context, basically one every five people um, are Latina OX, right? Um, but as you say, I mean, in terms of the scholarly production, in terms of the lines, 
uh, in terms of the grant funding, etc. It's not 20% or 18%. Um, mm-hmm. So why do you think that's the case? Um, and, and what could be done uh, to sort of uh, fast track that? Yeah, I mean, that that's, 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 uh, this is the key question, right? I mean, I think, um, I think some of it is that, you know, it's just awareness and, and people not recognizing um, how large the Latino community is. And um, even at institutions, for example, where there's a very large, you know, Latino, like local community or student, um, you know, or who are like Hispanic serving institutions, for example. Um, so I think that a lot of it is about um, awareness. I think also, uh, you know, recognizing that the work that we do is not, um, you know, it's not just for us, so to speak, you know, as, as Latino media scholars, or even for like, you know, our Latino students. But um, these are really the perspectives um, and frameworks that would benefit everyone in the field. Um, and also that work, I see work getting reproduced in ways that it shouldn't be because we, people haven't read the work in our field. So I think that that's, I think a lot of it is, is awareness needs to happen and also, you know, recognize and really, you know, um, bringing more attention to the kinds of uh, concepts and frameworks that are really useful um, in understanding Latino communities, but also can be useful from a more comparative perspective too, right? In terms of thinking about non-Latino communities. Fabulous, thank you so much, uh, Gillian. This has been a truly fascinating conversation. Uh, I wanna thank also our listeners uh, for uh, staying with us uh, to the end and invite everybody to uh, stay tuned for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. <laughs>